Hey, and welcome to Unlimited Hangout with Whitney Webb. Today I am joined once again by the one and only Corey Morningstar. Corey is an independent investigative journalist based in Canada and is also a longtime environmental activist. Her work has focused on major issues such as global ecological collapse, the nonprofit industrial complex, imperial wars, and the role NGOs play in promoting or sustaining them. In our first discussion on this podcast, which is episode six for those interested, we focused on the fourth industrial revolution and how a lot of what is currently being sold as quote unquote sustainable development by the ruling class is hardly good for people or for the planet. Today, we will be building on that discussion uh, by covering the efforts of a the so-called global Green New Deal and the complementary agenda known as the New Deal for Nature. We will also be discussing some of the groups, NGOs, and methods behind the latest propaganda pushes related to COVID-19. So welcome back to the program, Corey. It's great to have you. Hi, Whitney. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think most people by now in the US and Canada, at least, and probably several other Western countries have heard of the Green New Deal to some degree. Uh, People like you and I were early critics of these proposals once they went mainstream going at least three to four years back in my case. Um, But more recently, there have been efforts to supercharge the push for a global Green New Deal, uh, specifically in the last uh, two years or so. So can you talk a little bit about what this is, who's leading this renewed push, and what the implications of this are? Um, Sure. Um, A lot of people think that the Green New Deal is a newer thing. It's not. I mean, it goes back decades, but um, in relation to what we see today, it goes back to 2009, where it was made public um, that basically the UN launching um, a new green global economy um, right out of article Back at that time, in short, we need to make um, growing green our mantra. And then um, it, it talks about in November 2008, G20 leaders expressed their determination to enhance cooperation and work together to restore global growth and achieve needed reforms in the world financial systems. It was recognized at that time that it needed to happen urgently. And um, this is this is coming out of the SDG Knowledge Hub in February 19th in 2009. And for those that don't know, the SDGs are the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the Global Goals. And then in um, 2000, and what is it, June of 2019, the World Economic Forum actually um, officially partnered with the United Nations. And they're at the helm of implementing the SDGs, which are actually, um, although they're presented as things that sound great, you know, eradication of poverty, health, all these different goals that sound very positive. They're actually emerging markets, um, which, you know, um, the whole system is basically why we face um, the ecological disasters and, um, um, you know, all the horrible things happening that we see today. So, again, if you go back to this article, 2009, you have the UN Secretary at that time, I believe, is Ban Ki-moon and Al Gore right, calling for the launching of a new green global economy. And so let me just check a couple things here, pull up a couple of screenshots I have. So that that followed the financial, the, I would say, orchestrated financial collapse of 2008. And then if you jump forward to 2000 and um, is it 2019, I believe, I, I did quite, I, I covered that in my series, the manufacturing of Greta Thunberg for consent um, about the Green New Deal and um, AOC in the, in the United States Congressman. Um, what is her name? I can never remember. Alexandria Ocasio. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Cortez, yeah. And um, so basically, she was created by, um, you know, she was found and basically. Um, molded into this um, person to, to bring this forward by um, justice, I think it's justice and Democrats. Anyway, it's in my article. And basically that contains factions of um, connected to a vase. And if you go back to um, 2009, you've got um, Paul Hilder. You know, those tweets can still be found on his Twitter today talking about the polling that they're doing back at that time on um on the green new deal so at that time they're already you know trying to figure out how to how to get the public uptake how to get the um 
the social license required, you know, for this thing. And for that, you need a lot of marketing and a lot of, um, um, a lot, it's all language and framing, right? To make it sound good, like it's serving the people when it, when it, when it isn't. Anyway, you jump forward, um, 2019, AOC now is a big deal. She's, she calls for a Green New Deal in the United States. Um, the following year, you've got, um, you've got Shiva at, at the C40 Cities Conference announcing a global Green New Deal. Vandana Shiva, you have, um, um, we mean business. You have um, Omar. You have AOC, um, the head of 350.org. You've got them all at, at C40 Cities, um, which is Bloomberg and Clinton, right? And, and there they're talking about, again, a global Green New Deal. Um, the year before, again, I'm bouncing around here, back to 2019, you have a huge report. I forget how many hundreds of pages Um out by the UN about a global Green New Deal. Um, at the same time, you've got Europe, you've got people um, connected to the European Union and the World Economic Forum um, talking about the Green New Deal. So basically what I'm getting at, you can call it the um, Build Back Better, you can call it Green New Deal, you can call it the Great Reset, you can call it whatever you want, but what it actually is, is it's all in the same it's the building of <clears throat> trying to obtain the social license to further continue um, a whole entire restructuring of the global economy, you know, social restructuring, um, financial restructuring, like the, the entire thing restructured um, to basically secure the ruling class and secure their power and actually not only secure it, but expand it. And so that's that's what we're seeing um, from, you know, we're being hit on all sides by different framing and different language and different campaigns. But it's all for one thing. And it's to um, ensure the people that have all the wealth maintain it and the people that have all the power maintain it at the expense of the impoverished in the natural world. Right. So um, one of these newer groups that launched pushing for a global Green New Deal, I think just launched a couple months ago. It's called the Global Alliance for a Green New Deal. Um, people listening in the U.S. Uh, will be familiar with Ilhan Omar, obviously, who you already mentioned, and she's one of the founding members um, of this. But if you go to their website, globalgreennewdeal.org, um, it basically tells you what, what the Green New Deal is fundamentally about. And, uh, you know, it says it consists of two main strands, right? The first one is the redesign of national and international financial systems. And the second one is significant investments in uh, energy conservation and renewable energies and specifically policies aimed at uh, altering the way of life in the global north specifically, um, which is pretty interesting. And so... Um, when you consider that this is being done, as you mentioned earlier, is, is essentially the, the UN in partnership with the World Economic Forum and that the World Economic Forum is leading this, the World Economic Forum, you know, the Davos crowd, these are like the, the ruling class, the richest people in the world. And so they're structuring, they're using this to push push through the redesign of, of the entire uh, global financial system and to uh, enact policies that would otherwise be completely unpopular and unaccepted. Um, in the global north. And so this is being marketed specifically uh, through, uh, at least in the West, through progressive politicians um, under the guise of collectivism. But we've already seen that a lot of these ruling class um, figures uh, tied to the World Economic Forum's push for this um, are hardly <laughs> going to like, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking on any of the burden that they want the masses to take on here. Uh, you have people like Mark Carney, for example, the former top central banker in, in England, and I also believe in Canada. Uh, you know, he's now the UN envoy for climate change. And there's all these quotes um, of his recently talking about, you know, essentially that uh, private venture capital is going to lead this and all of this stuff and the bankers are going to lead this, um, you know, whole uh, green new revolution or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and at the same time, you have, you know, billionaires that are promoting um 
a lot of these policies like Bill Gates, for example, like he has multiple homes, he flies on private jets everywhere. He's obviously like not in this, uh, what's being framed as a collectivist struggle. Right. So it's definitely interesting to see all this, um, all these different pieces taking place. But I think that uh, there's been a really successful effort to sort of um, sell it to people under the guise of collectivism, sort of like the way with COVID-19, um, some countries have framed it in the media as like a wartime effort. Like we have to get through this together. We have to come together and, you know, uh, share the burden together while you have a lot of the elites at the same time, not following the rules and they get caught and they don't really, you know, have to have the same type of consequences if they get caught with not wearing masks or dining when they're not supposed to in lockdown um, and all of this stuff. And so we're seeing sort of the same thing uh, developing here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, the whole, that word, that specific word together, I've written about that, right? That's part of the language and framing going back to 2010. We've had a full decade of that together where we're to join hands with corporate power and those that oppress us, right? Um, but it's not together, right? This is a, this is a class war. And I mean, there's so many parallels between COVID and climate and even, the, the things that are happening now could never happen without this um, cover, without the smoke screen of COVID, because people would never accept it. People would never accept on um, the monetization of nature and our natural world and that the new stewards of nature will be those that destroyed it. People would never accept that happening behind the scenes. We have nuclear. We have, um, you know, up to right now, 300 new nuclear um, plants being designed with carbon capture storage. You know, trillions of dollars being pumped into carbon capture storage. We have trillions of dollars in bailouts that before COVID, no one would have ever, that this would have never been tolerated by society, right? And so we have all this happening behind the scenes. Carney just did this year. He's got um, Net Zero Pension Summit, right? They're looking at, again, I wrote about this a couple of years ago, $100 trillion in the pensions, how to unlock them, how to how private you know, how do, how do you use that to um, basically double the global infrastructure by 2040? So, I mean, when you talk about doubling the global infrastructure by 2040 and you talk about nuclear, you talk about carbon capture storage, which is basically we're going to continue um, burning, but we'll capture, you know, the carbon and pump it down the ground. These are all just emerging markets and it's all the same old. It's actually worse because as we've already talked about before, Whitney, um, now we're going to actually mine the oceans, right? And so um, the sky's the limit. Everyone knows or, or should know that the more you plunder, obviously, the more, um, em- you know, emissions you create, the more damage. It's all being under the guise of biodiversity. And yet we're going to actually destroy um, a- every aspect of biodiversity in the name of climate. So, like, it's a real, um, it's real fuckery here with people's minds. And yeah, and what else is Carney doing? There's huge, huge um, uptake right now in carbon markets happening again. I mean, years ago, there was quite a, quite a bit of resistance against carbon markets, but actually that's happening now behind the scenes in a massive way, massive. And I'm not being talked about. I mean, it's actually so convenient that everyone's um, hypnotized by the whole COVID narrative and all this stuff is just happening with, um, you know, no, no dissent whatsoever. You know, coming up to COP26, the financialization of nature coming up right, right into that. A big part of this is on the bioengineering economy, biotech. And you have a part of the um, draft that was just put out last month for um, the convention coming up in China in October. Um, where all this is supposed to be basically agreed upon. And um, uh, part of that document is the digital sequence information on gene editing. This is going to be a huge part of it, right? We're going to actually um, edit all life, right, to serve like a white supremacist um, um, patriarchy, right? Like it's this whole thing is very anti, anti-life, anti-human, anti-feminine. Right. They, it is. And, you know, part of this, again, what people aren't seeing is the genetic modification, precision farming, all this biotech with our food. Right. With with our people. Right. And even like the, the whole vaccine, experimental vaccine, which has not been approved, which I, I mean, we're part of this huge experiment. This is the launching pad 
of biotech going forward, which is massive. And so there's a lot um, not being discussed, again, behind the smoke screen of COVID. Yeah, uh, that's definitely, definitely true. It's definitely served to make every other problem seem minor, though over the course of this year, um, it's been interesting to see sort of these these efforts to sort of link the two, to link climate change um, and COVID-19. And this was actually uh, sort of foreshadowed. I've talked about this in several interviews that um, before um, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, uh, was held, they have something called Agenda Week. And so the initial uh, speech of that that was given by the World Economic Forum uh, chairman, Klaus Schwab, he essentially said uh, that by the end of the year, which is when uh, COP26, which you mentioned earlier, is essentially taking place, um, most of the concern globally, i.e. the fear, uh, will have shifted from COVID-19 to climate change by that time. And then a couple months later, you have um, Bill Gates, who all over the course of last year was just talking about um, you know, uh, pandemics and pandemic two after COVID-19 uh, and the vaccines and, and other things, uh, right? He comes out starting to talk about climate change again, and there seems to be like this obvious pivot. Uh, there were some uh, leaked videos of CNN's uh, technical director saying that they're going to move from COVID-19 to climate change, um, which is pretty uh, interesting because it seems like a lot of the tactics um that were used to accomplish what has been accomplished under COVID-19 um, in terms of its psychological impact on people and how, you know, what types of policies and, and life changes uh, from the top down people are willing to accept um, are kind of similar to what they, um, you could argue they had hoped previously to accomplish with climate change, but hadn't been able to. Um, so it seems sort of like an interesting segue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be two-pronged, basically, COVID and climate together, exactly as you say. I mean, but it's driven by fear and panic and hysteria. And so we're we're going to talk about climate and we're going to instill, you know, more um, hysteria and fear into the populace. But we're not going to discuss the solutions that are actually being put forward, the ones that no, that are not being discussed. I mean, all that's being discussed is basically you have the hundreds of thousands, you know, maybe millions actually people um, lobbying for green energy. That is not going to solve, that's not going to mitigate um, climate change or solve our biodiversity problems. This is only going to make it worse. And so you're right, um, they are going to use this to push the agenda further. I mean, it's all about basically, there's even a document um, I just found from July, I believe that was, um, I'm going to see if I can find it here. It was written by the Economist Intelligence Unit with Avaz and the World Economic Forum. Um, I'm going to see if I can find it. Um, they're even calling, I mean, everything is not zero now, net zero pensions, net zero nuclear, net zero everything. But, oh, here it is. Um, they're calling this an eco-awakening, measuring global awareness, engagement, and action for nature, right? And so they're actually measuring how people are reacting to, to everything, and it's to obtain the social license. I mean, the ruling class is actually terrified even though um, we often feel really powerless, which is understandable what's going on. In reality, the ruling class is, um, ruling classes are terrified of, of um, resistance and a whole end of revolt where they do actually lose their power and their position within global society. Um, so anyway, in this, um, an eco-awakening, again, measuring global awareness um, with same old players of Oz and everybody else. And this is, you know, like every day they're capturing this data. Can we do this yet? Can we implement the things that we want to at this juncture? Are people prepared to accept it? I mean, this this is a, a huge part of it. Um, so it's priming people, you know, to accept um, through their peer, their fear and anxiety and panic um, that that the media is building, um, priming them to accept. Um, the corporate solutions that are already designed in store waiting in the wings. And this is what Jeremy Hyman's from um, uh, Avaz co-founder, co-founder and the co-founder of, or founder of Purpose, actually co-founder of Purpose, which is like the for-profit marketing arm of Avaz. This is what they call new power. 
right, in New Power, which is, um, you know, applauded by World Economic Forum, Richard Branson, again, ruling class, billionaires, um, um, corporate power. New Power is the ability to channel and harness energy. And they, they actually say harness energy to get what you want. Right. And so if you don't, that means going into groups where there's, um, you know, angst, dissent and building um, bridges with them and and, you know, reframing all that to get what you want. So, for example, we can get what we've seen through the Greta campaign. We can get people um, by they can by by the millions demanding um, that for action on climate. Right. That is very, very um you know, that just, it's just do something, right? That's sort of what people are made to demand. Do something. Uh, we want our politicians to, to do something. Um, align with the Paris Agreement, like very, very simple demands. We never, um, you know, we never go into the root causes of all these, of all these huge problems that we have. And so basically you can channel all that energy, which they have to, um, unleash the corporate solutions that will not, like I said, they will not mitigate climate. They will further our ecological destruction. They will further class division. Um, it's all, again, what we've talked about, all to keep everything intact and expand it at the expense of the working class and the peasantry. And so it's very, very clever. Lots of marketing involved. Um, they have, you know, just they, they put trillions of dollars actually into the nonprofit industrial complex which serves as an instrument, right, of, of empire and ruling class. And it, it, it's, it's really difficult um, to, it's really difficult to work against this in that way that it's so powerful, right? They're so organized. All this stuff we, we're seeing now has been in the works for not just years, but decades, um, but I mean, history is not written and I think, um, I still believe in people and I think people are starting to see what's happening. So you've mentioned DeVos several times and, um, I, I know you've mentioned them several times, but I don't know if that many people in my audience are really familiar with them by name. Um, I think it would be helpful maybe if you could give an overview of Avaz and how they're not just evolved with this agenda, but also have ties, uh, for example, to um, Syrian war propaganda, for example, and, and you know, imperialism, things like that. Um, so uh, any chance you could give a brief overview of who they are and why they're important? Yeah, I've written a lot about Avaz, but um, not, not a lot in the past few years, although I do have pieces that are not finished yet that I will finish at some point. Avaz is really, really embedded within empire and ruling classes. I mean, all the founders have come, came out of McKinsey. Um, anyone that doesn't know who McKinsey is, that's a partner of the, is a strategic partner of the World Economic Forum, and it's a founding partner of the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolutions that are setting up all over the globe. So McKinsey um, is very, very important. I mean, in Ontario, McKinsey is actually at the helm of the whole pandemic structure. So we have McKinsey at the helm. And, and meanwhile, so so here's McKinsey, who's supposedly supposed to take care and care about um, our health. And at the same time, this year, they're, they're settling for billions of dollars in the role of the opioid crisis that is ongoing in the deaths of millions of right. people. Well, right. So just the irony here and what's lost, right, on people is actually astounding. But Avaz, um, again, they all came out of McKinsey. If you go back to 2007, actually, the founder of Avaz, Rickon Patel, he wrote a paper for the Gates Foundation. It's called um, something like Cellular Savior. And it's um, basically advising the Gates Foundation, you know, about this, this, huge massive opportunity coming i mean through that cell phone right now that smartphone is actually the foundation of the whole fourth industrial revolution architecture at, the, at this moment in time that's you know it's been said that the fourth industrial revolution will run through this through the phone right as the conduit for now i mean later it will be in, embedded into humans, there will be different forms that connect us to this whole, you know, virtual, um, virtual existence. 
But yeah, Vaz is um, right in there, part of the United Nations. Um, what more can I say about it? it? I mean, they, from the beginning, they had built a huge audience. I think it was launched in 2007 or 2008 before they were members of, um, they held different positions within governments and they were um, sort of positioned around the world and the global south on um, these different, um, uh, attached to the World Bank. Anyway, it, it's presented like everything, right? It has this beautiful veneer of holistic, um, you know, like color and sensory. Um, it's people, when they click on these petitions and that, they think they're doing something good. But it, again, it's just branding, right? And um, I don't know, they've just been really, really instrumental. I mean, even We Mean Business, which is a huge part of all this, they're um, the... Um, Callum Grieve, who's um, the creator of the Climate Group, and um, he's named as a founder of We Mean Business by the Ro by the World Wildlife Fund. He is right behind Greta Thunberg and has been since day one, as well as Al Gore's group, um, the Climate Reality Group. Right, um, also was in a phone. Um, conversation with Greta Thunberg months before she was discovered, you know, quote unquote discovered on the sidewalk with um, a film crew sitting there to film it. Um, so Vaz has been involved like with not only destroying sovereign targeted states, right, such as Libya um, countries. Um, they, they tried to overthrow Bolivia. They were involved in that. Um, it, you know, you know, they were involved in trying to put a no-fly zone over Syria. They had people in Syria. I mean, Avaz is just one of the worst um, um, imperialist NGOs actually in existence. Um, so anyway, yeah, people should see when they see their name. That's a real um, warning sign. They've been involved, involved with the um, financialization of nature since the beginning. I mean, you can just find their name behind pretty much everything that the ruling class um, wants to, you know, wants to, wants to get into place. They're just all over the place, right? And they're like huge in Brazil now. Um, they're all over in North America. Oh, I think I was talking about We Mean Business. They helped um, with it. We Mean Business with the 23 million market cap is behind Greta Thunberg. Avaz helped with, with um, the creation of that as well as Greenpeace helped with the creation of We Mean Business. Um, yeah, so all these NGOs have this green patina, right? They're right um, part and parcel of everything that's destroying um, our societies and our um, our biodiversity, our, our shared environment, um, the collective, you know, legitimate, like, communities. Like, it's amazing, too, right now where we really have to join hands together. I And I don't mean, like, as in... Greenpeace and Avaz, I mean, like real people, grassroots communities, just communities in general. We have to fight what is coming. And now they're succeeding and having everyone terrified of one another, right? And we've all become like, um, you know, dirty contagions and everyone's in fear of each other. I mean, it's pretty stunning how um, successful that they are, right, when it comes to colonizing our minds. Well, speaking of that, I want to go over some of these NGOs um, because, you know, some like the the World Wildlife, uh, I guess it's a fund or foundation, I forget exactly, but the WWF, it has like the panda logo, everyone knows it. You know, um, a lot of people just associate that like, oh, they must be doing good because they have, you know, this extensive decades long uh, PR about what their organization is, right? But um, if you look at who leads them, for example, they're like president and CEO um, is a, a formerly worked really closely with Walmart and Cargill, <laughs> uh, Procter and Gamble. I mean, some of the biggest companies in the world as part of the CFR um, and all of this stuff. And it's really uh, amazing to see what groups like that uh, work, like like what other types of um, organizations they work closely with. So like another NGO in that category, right, would be like the Nature Conservancy that people tend to associate with like, oh, 
you know, they're, uh, you know, an environmental organization advancing this, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at who leads them, I think he's still in charge. I'll have to go double check, I guess. But uh, Henry Paulson, Secretary of Treasury under Bush, the guy that threatened martial law um, if he didn't get a bailout for Wall Street banks. Um, in 2008 is the guy that's in charge of the Nature Conservancy, um, or at least was until recently if he was taken out. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure who's leading it now, but as of a, a year or two ago, he was in charge. And what's wild is like, you know, uh, so many people just see the logo and just be like, oh, yeah, those seem like great guys. <laughs> but I mean, Henry Paulson, do you really think he's in it for nature? I mean, he's like a longtime Goldman Sachs executive. He was like Secretary of Treasury under George W. Bush and was... Re- responsible for horrific policies. Um, It's really amazing that people can continue to associate, um, you know, these uh, people that are led by like some of the most predatory uh, bankers and like corporate warlords really um, in the world with, with, you know, actually wanting some sort of altruistic uh, future and wanting to restore nature and all of this stuff. And one, um, of the groups that the Nature Conservancy and the WWF partner with pretty regularly is actually called Business for Nature. Um, and they, they, you know, if you look at their strategic advisory group, for example, they say, oh, these are representatives from what they call forward thinking businesses who place protecting and restoring nature at the heart of their business strategies. And then you go and you look through the companies. uh, that they're representing, you know, they're like top people from a city, like Citibank, one of the biggest banks on Wall Street, um, H&M Group, uh, uh, Walmart, Unilever. Um, you know, it's just really crazy that so many, um, you know, progressives that have you know, consistently in any other circumstance will be like, oh, boo, corporate America, um, you know, are, are so easily, um, I guess, uh, <laughs> convinced otherwise if these people have, you know, the right branding and the right PR um, for the particular uh, NGOs. And what's really interesting, too, is that this this business for nature group, you know, it's all about what you were talking about, um, financializing nature and making it a commodity that these people can, uh, you know, it's all about measuring nature, how to measure nature, and then how to uh, value it and financialize it and make it a commodity. Um, and this is something that is like the least... Um, it, it, it's just astounding that uh, we've, we've come to a point where there's so many people who identify as progressives that are essentially supporting these policies. Yeah. And I mean, they found they don't have to stop at monetizing, measuring, monetizing nature. They can um, actually measure and monetize social capital and human capital as well. So that's been added into the mix. Um, I just I'm I'm going to see if I can find it right here. So Clive Spash, who's um, an, an economist, he writes, human health, education, and population are also to be monetized and treated like man-made capital. Together, three forms of capital, natural, human, and produced, are taken to represent the inclusive wealth of humanity. In this way, all social, ecological, and economic aspects are equated, allowing their aggregation and integration into national accounting systems. Conflicting objectives and interests are assumed commensurable via reduction to monetary equivalents that support financial wealth accumulation. There is no error in this independent report. He's writing about a, re- a recent report having been commissioned by the Treasury Department under a ruling conservative party. While pricing, trading off, and optimizing our traditional economic fair, the political vision here involves a far-reaching public policy agenda, promoting the total domination of, non- of non-financial aspects of life by finance. And so that's what we're looking at. And I just wanted to add about WWF. I mean, the New Deal for Nature came right out of Davos um, just a few, a couple, I don't know, two or three years ago, um, out of Davos. And it was World Economic Forum, Al Gore, and World Wildlife Fund. Um, so World Wildlife Fund is um, an integral partner with the World Economic Forum. They created a campaign called Voice for Nature on Greta Thunberg is one of the, um, there's a video Greta Thunberg promoting the voice, um, sorry, not Voice for Nature, Voice for the Planet. Voice for the Planet, and then they have Jane Goodall, David Attenborough, David Attenborough, is that his? David yeah. Attenborough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The guy that narrates the BBC nature documentaries, basically, yeah, yeah, for those that don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, I, and so they have the voice 
um, Voice for the Planet. So that is like the sister campaign for the New Deal for Nature. And, you know, you can look at their documents. Oh, we have millions of people, you know, in support of this. People don't even know what they're supporting, that they're supporting the whole, um, you know, financing, the whole um, basically financing all life, putting a, a, a monetary um, price on, on all life on the planet. They, they don't know this. They never actually say what this is, right? Just, we need a new deal for nature. We need a global deal for nature. We have to protect nature. We have to save nature, but it's not about that at all. You know, and and meanwhile, as um, Survival Internationalist has actually done a great job um, putting up a campaign against the 30 by 30 campaign, which is like the privatization of 30% of the planet, um, where more and more indigenous peoples will be removed, you know, furthering the genocide of indigenous people. World um, Wildlife Fund has been found to, um, you know, bear huge responsibility for murder, rapes, um, torture of indigenous peoples. This is documented. Um, people should follow Stephen Corey on Twitter, right, to, to learn about this. And when he um, basically challenges, you know, international NGOs, like Greenpeace, how they can possibly support uh, NGO, you know, that is um, um, responsible for for these horrible, cruel things happening to happening to Indigenous peoples to this day. They're silent, you know. He is absolutely ignored. These groups know what they're supporting, and they don't care because that's why they, you know, get the massive salaries and the massive. Um, millions, mil- hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, right, to um, toe the line. So, yeah, World, World Wildlife Fund is one of the worst, worst that there is. I mean, it's just um, horrific. And it's sad because their power actually comes from their ability to say, oh, we have all this support. We have all these people that, you know, follow us. Um, people need to, like, stop supporting these NGOs and start supporting you know, grassroots resistance in communities, in your, you know, local communities. Um, anyway, it's it's so um, out of control, actually, that the power that the nonprofit industrial complex now has. I mean, they're more powerful than governments. And then, of course, our governments now are ruled by corporate power as well. So it's, um, you know, this is like a really volatile place that we find ourselves in today. So um, since we've talked mostly about the, the Green New Deal or the Global Green New Deal, how would you uh, describe the New Deal for nature to people that aren't familiar? Um, I guess just that paragraph I read is a really, good, um, a really good way to describe it. People can watch more videos by Clive Spash. He's one of the only um, economists in the world actually telling the truth on it, speaking out against it, you know, calling environmentalists, you know, quote unquote, environmentalists, pragmatists. It's, it's the, on one hand, we have the monetization of all life on the planet, right? And then on the other hand, we're going to have the gene editing of all life on the planet that will basically serve humans, um, very human, obviously very human centric and just dis- so disturbing. Um, right. So they think they can make nature better, right? We can make nature serve man, man, you know, the, the white European, you know, class structure. So, I mean, it's so depraved. I've been watching in my house, um, <laughs> I've been watching every day. I have these huge gardens that I that I've been working on for years and decades. And anyway, I've been watching a caterpillar. It's gone into a chrysalis and it's going to turn into a butterfly soon. And every day, I'm just completely moved and um in awe, you know, of that. And to think that these people, these depraved people, think they can do better than that. I mean, that's what this is. This is man's arrogance. Um, so, and, and again, to monetize it all, it, it, it's actually just sick. So you've got the buy, you, you have the gene editing, right, of crops and, and every single thing that can be gene edited will be edited to serve, to basically become enslaved 
to the economic system, you know, controlled by Western countries. And then you've got the, um, you've got over here the financialization of nature where it'll all be monetized. And then, um, you've got another sort of component of it, which is blockchain and basically, um, the data that all of, that all of this provides. So again, like we're, this is a brand new everything, everything, everything is being restructured. Um, fourth industrial revolution, restructuring again, the whole global economy and restructuring people's minds to accept and fit into this hostile world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hostile, right? Like, um, horrible. I, I think maybe I mentioned last time Deloitte actually says who will survive, who will perish. I mean, that's the type of world we're going into, right? So no, not this beautiful, great reset, not this beautiful green world, not this beautiful anything, like a harsh, um, enclosed world. I mean, we've seen capitalism contract, you know, we're like in a vice, it's being squeezed, everything moving up, up, up. Now we have enclosure of the commons, right? We have all this happening and we're fighting with each other. Right over masks and vaccines and everything, instead of um, being united against this, so that the the ruling class has actually succeeded is succeeding in dividing us when it's never been more important that we become united against the enemy. The enemy is not you and I. The enemy is them. The enemy is the system that we're enslaved in. So um, one of the ways that the New Deal for Nature describes itself, it talks a lot about um, stopping, like completely halting uh, habitat loss um, and drastically reducing economic activity um, and things like that. Do you foresee that being used um, as a way to sort of force people um, or to justify policies that are aimed at forcing people off of um, rural properties or even suburban properties and into smart cities? Well, yeah, I do think that. I do think that's the way it's going to go, basically, um, with, I think they said by, I read in white paper, by 2050, 80% of the population will live in the city. So what does that mean for um, Indigenous peoples? You know, so what we see now, it's just like um, carbon markets and red, you know, where forests now, they've pushed the Indigenous peoples out, they've burned down villages, burned down their homes, get them out. Oh, sorry, you can't be here. We're protecting it. Right? Well, there's indigenous peoples, 5% remaining on the planet, I believe. They have protected, I think it's around 95% of biodiversity. And so this is just fucking crazy. And it's all, again, language and framing and these campaigns that are fiction, they're storytelling. So, yeah, we will be pushed into cities. Indigenous, the genocide of indigenous peoples will be lost. And another thing I think it achieves by basically, um, you know, protecting and closing, um, which will be all traded on Wall Street, all this stuff, all, all these unnatural areas and visited probably by rich um, vacations made into, you know, um, tourists um, set up, tourists, tourism for, for like the super rich to come in and stay in um, beautiful settings and that. It'll all be for the rich, for their, their exclusive playgrounds. So, in the same way that we no longer, we don't see industrial, say industrial, um, livestock, um, the whole industry, we don't see it. It's kept behind closed doors, behind, you know, there's not even windows in these, in these, um, you know, massive, massive places where all this, um, grotesque, uh, all these abuses go on against animals. We don't see it out of sight, out of mind, everything packaged, beautiful, dyed red at the grocery store. Um, you, you don't get your hands clean. You don't see it. And I think they're doing basically the same way with the energy in that. I mean, now the energy just for the data centers alone, um, you know, is just way more than aviation ever was. That's already today, let alone in five years from now. And, so all this land use will, so much of it will have to be um, mined and and made to hold like massive. I mean, this everything is at scale. So 
the scale is actually unimaginable when you see solar farms and wind farms, how it, um, you know, destroys um, the lands and how much space it takes up. And to keep for this um, virtual existence um, that basically is the fourth industrial revolution, we won't see any of this. We'll all be in the cities. It will all be behind closed doors. What happens to the natural world, it, it's not, we won't see it. We won't, it won't affect us. Even our food will be synthetic. So more and more, it's a um, basically um, we're being more and more removed from nature in every possible way. And I, I think that allows, you know, everything going forward to happen. Right. People won't see that. I mean, people are starting to not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that that happened already in the U.S., you know, for example, with the um, industrial uh, like meat system, for example, like keeping people removing people so much yeah. from like family farms and, and you know, the get big or get out agriculture um a push that happened under the Nixon administration um, and, and all of that, you know, basically divorced people from their food supplies. So like people just got used to just buying, you know, uh, vegetables and meat and whatever um, in the supermarket, not really knowing where it comes from. And so you have kids in kindergarten, you know, in the U.S. that like see dirt on a potato or a carrot and they're like, ew, this is gross. You know, not knowing that like, you know, how those how those foods are actually grown because there's just been this so much distance put in, but also like the extreme uh, abuse and, and maltreatment of, of animals, um, livestock and things like that in, in this sort of industrialized uh, meat production system. You know, a lot of people don't know because it's like totally uh, hidden away and, and, and kept away from, you know, out of sight and out of mind, essentially. And so if they can do that with with more of it, you know, uh, they, they've seen it work on, on, I guess you could say on a smaller scale um, with with different aspects Um you know, over the over the past few decades, and that's been successful. And I think also, if you look at this through, you know, COVID-19 sort of as conditioning for some of the stuff they want to implement in this regard, um, you know, like the the social distancing between people, keeping people from interacting, keeping people from going outside and having them sort of like locked in their homes, which for most people tend to be, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have yards around the world. There's a lot of people in apartments and stuff like that. Um, you know, so like lockdowns, I know, for example, like a lot of people um, in Santiago in the capital of Chile, for example, I mean, they live in like box apartments, uh, the lockdown, <laughs> you couldn't really even go outside until they um, changed it a little bit after several months and stuff like that. But what that's an incredible way to divorce people um, from having any sort of, you know, outside existence and to sort of shepherd people into getting used to a virtual existence. And so you have like the Zoom schools. Um, you know, uh, for kids and, you know, getting everyone hooked on the screen and, and, and all of this stuff, you know, a lot of that has uh, been greatly exacerbated over the course of COVID-19 and really um, sort of <laughs> set this up, I guess you could argue. Um, but, you know, it's amazing that they're doing all of this under the guise of protecting nature um, when this is just to get uh, people out of the way and keep it out of sight and out of mind completely and have us so distracted so they can do whatever they want with nature, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. I completely agree. I mean, instead of us um, recognizing that we're part of nature, we'll see nature as the new other, right? And when um, some, you know, when someone or some, someone, some, you know, other life is other, you can do all sorts of horrible things to that other. And so it um, allows for all kinds of things that are coming again in service to you know the the rulers that rule everything today so this doesn't um do anything to eradicate poverty they don't care about our health they don't care about nature they don't care about biodiversity they never have we can't expect the people that, that have you know destroyed the planet to now come in and save it and when you read the, these reports it's all put on humans humans have destroyed biodiversity humans 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 but it's not true. I mean, so um, uh, most of the damage done on the world is done by a very small, most of the emissions um, is, is done, you know, are created by a very small group of people. I believe 5% of, um, the, of the global population creates, oh, it's a huge number. So I, I'm not going to, I might not get this exactly right, but it's anywhere from 50 to 80% of the global emissions. Maybe it's even over 90%. 
it's just like a massive, um, you know, huge disparity there. Yeah, it's definitely a small number of corporations, much of which which also don't pay taxes and probably wouldn't pay taxes under the new yeah. uh, restructuring of this economy anyway, because they can buy all these offsets. You know, that's essentially how carbon markets um, allow them to wiggle their <laughs> their way out of any sort of responsibility even then. Um, and I think I think a, a useful way for looking um, at this situation that might help sort of uh, pry people that are sort of stuck in this paradigm out of it is to remember back to things like the TPP, for example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and how there was this push there uh, to essentially eliminate public laws and have them essentially replaced with like offshore corporate courts that corporations could sue um, and say that a particular government law um, was infringing on their profit margin. And then that would be decided in offshore courts controlled by the corporations. And they could essentially uh, become the new government that way um, and restructure things however they wanted. Um, you know, that way there's obviously like a longstanding effort um, to have corporations become the new government. And so, you know, what we're seeing with like the World Economic Forum, which is, you know, nominally, they say, you know, they're about advancing public private partnership. Uh, They're leading this hand in hand with like the central bankers, the private bankers. Uh, That's who is really like pushing this agenda forward. Um, And it's, you know, you just have to look at their track record uh, to know what these people actually plan to do. And it doesn't really matter what they say or how good their PR is um, or any of this stuff. I mean, you have to look at their actions and not their words. And, um, you know, I I really hope people at the end of the day uh, don't continue to be so gullible um, about these people and their intentions um, when it's when it's quite clear that, you know, they clearly view uh, their position, privileged position and the current status quo as threatened if they actually allow there to be any agency of the mass ma- vast majority of people. Um, and so they're taking matters into their own hands um, through, you know, different uh, campaigns, I guess you could call it. Um, to remake society so they don't have to worry about their position in the status quo being challenged anymore and they can entrench it um, even further. And I think that's essentially what we're talking about here. Yeah. And as you basically in your introduction, you sort of nailed it. I mean, we'll do that. We're being basically um, manipulated to believe, you know, it's sort of some sort of patriotic movement where we'll do this, you know, to save the the natural world we're going to allow you know these the you know these fascist measures to be in place because you know we're patriots or saving the climate and all this stuff and yeah it's just um again framing storytelling language um it's just so not true so not true i mean people most people are held hostage, right? We're enslaved in the system. This is not the system that we created. It's not a system that serves people, right? Um, so, yeah, anyway, it's um, getting really um, frightening. I mean, for them, it's all coming together just as they've, um, in, you know, wanted it to thus far. That doesn't mean it, it, it can't be... Um, you know, that we can't stop it. But this is a long-term project that's coming into, that we're seeing now rolled out. Yeah. And um, I think what's interesting here, you know, talking about all these different campaigns or crises, um, you know, is that a lot of the ones uh, that we've been talking about, you know, COVID-19, climate change. um, But also, if you think of things like the war on terror, even the more recent in the U.S. anyway, the war on domestic terror, um, it's interesting that all of these things have in common is, is the idea of the um, invisible enemy. So essentially people can't see the threat. They're just, they have to depend on, you know, the authorities, the quote unquote authorities or quote unquote authoritative sources to educate them about the threat and what the threat will do and how it will develop and evolve because people can't see it for themselves. Um, so essentially, um, you know, I think that's um, these are the types of crises they rely on because if people were able to, you know, measure and gauge the threat for themselves, it would be much harder for them to manipulate people. Um, so they tend to rely on things that are sort of like, you know, um, beyond the 
um, you know, sort of where most people operate <laughs> uh, to a significant degree so that people have to rely on them for all the information and thus all of the solutions. Um, so regardless of whether, you know, those solutions are needed or not, you're basically placing your trust in in these authorities. And if these authorities, right, in the case of you know, governments around the world, specifically, you know, like the U.S. government, just as an example, has like a horrendous track record of lying about everything, um, insane wars, doing like all these awful things to governments abroad, uh, covertly and overtly and all of this. And, you know, if these are the people that you want to keep trusting after, you know, things like the war on terror and all of this stuff, um, you know, to tell you uh, what's what. I mean, I don't I don't really know how to break people, um, <laughs> you know, out of that anymore. Um, but, you know, obviously the, the the use of fear is is fundamental here and, and drives people to look to authority to it. Uh, but it's just interesting to me to see the commonality here of the, that the um, the threat or the force or the, the enemy force or whatever. Um, in a lot of these cases where there's these like ma- sweeping campaigns that change our way of life, take away our rights and all of this stuff um, tend to all be about an enemy that the right uh, the average person can't. Uh, no on their own essentially because they're like invisible yeah i completely agree with you i mean i actually did a couple of threads probably within maybe when this whole covid thing started on fear and how it's utilized you know by the ruling class to further their agendas and how powerful it is i mean if you go back even to i think it was that very same meeting at Davos where Greta was basically um, introduced to the world at the forum. And that actually was um, that whole summit was about the fourth industrial revolution, right? Led by um, Mark Benioff, Salesforce, owner of Time. um, um, He's the trustee of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in San Francisco, if you go back to that, even, you know, if people remember now our house is on fire, I want you to panic. I want you to panic, right? I mean, it's right there. They want us to panic. If we panic, we'll accept their quote unquote solutions, right? Which I've, which as we've discussed will only further, um, our ecological, um, problems, which are severe, right? They're actually severe. I used to write a lot about climate change. And I actually um, had to change my course of writing because I realized, again, like um, what the NGOs and the nonprofit industrial complex and in tandem with media had done, they had created um, a way of thinking that now people are prepared to sacrifice our natural world in the name of climate, right? And and you see that with um, the amount of energy um, the amount of global infrastructure, right? Again, doubling by 2040. You see that people now think it's that's a fix to actually sacrifice our natural world to save climate. It doesn't even make sense, right? And basically, that's what's been um, that's what's been embraced. This idea that, and so I had to get away from that, realizing that people weren't we're no longer, you know, protecting, fighting, right? Um, nature, like um, land defenders. No, we're now p- <laughs> marching to demands um, solar and wind and all the, all these things. I, I mean, a huge part of this, we don't discuss the energy that's being wasted. We don't discuss how few people in the world, even today have access to any energy at all. And so there's just so much to this. There's so many layers and layers and layers. But yeah, the fear and panic on the lack of critical thinking, the critical discussion where it needs to be, you know, what do we do with most of our energy? Where's the military industrial complex in all this? Where's imperialism Imperialism fit into all of this, right? I mean, the Green New Deal, whatever you want to call it, this is an imperial project, right? We further um, imperialism, we, we further, um, you know, um, enslavement, colonialism on, on these other countries that have the resources which we need to go forward to build this infrastructure, this um, global Green New Deal infrastructure, whatever you want to call it. So again, all ties back together. You can't have environmentalism without addressing the military 
um, industrial complex without addressing um, imperialism, without addressing colonialism, without addressing racism, without addressing, you know, there's there's a lot. Um, there's a lot that comes into this. And so we have to, we have to start framing these things ourselves instead of being manipulated into, um, you know, what he said, believing or accepting the narratives that come from the top down. Yeah. I mean, we just need to stop trusting these people. Well, I mean, you, you and I don't trust them, right? <laughs> and probably most of our audiences don't either. Um, but it, it's just amazing that, that, you know, um, how they can, you know, manufacture certain figures, you know, like AOC and Greta Thunberg being among them, right, that then are able to act as vehicles for trust, even though they're sort of like front people um, for interests that people wouldn't trust if they were very public about who's behind it, uh, who's behind these policies and agendas, who they are and all of that, you know. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. And another thing, uh, referring again to that January speech that Klaus Schwab gave, you know, he talked about this year specifically as a year about rebuilding trust. And I think that's because they know that trust is so fundamental, um, to the su success of their, their project. And that's why I think, um, you know, the people that work in this space and, you know, including you are so essential because we're like, uh, chipping away at their efforts, uh, to manipulate people into trusting them, which I think is really important. And I think more people, um, you know, I mean, obviously COVID-19 is a, is a major thing. And I think it's important to talk about, um, the contradictions there and what's being done under the guise of that as well. Um, but obviously the ruling class has moved on in a lot of ways, uh, from COVID to climate change. And so I think, um, you know, these, um, agendas disguised as sustainable development that are actually being led by the banking establishment um, and, and groups like this, you know, I think it's time that we start taking a closer look at what at what they're doing, because they're trying to keep us, um, you know, focused on the variants and the vaccines and why, you know, uh, talking about those issues are still important. I think that we also need to keep our eye on where, you know, these people are moving and the policies that they're seeking um, to to implement, you know, uh, as we move out of the enter the post COVID era, or whatnot, uh, because we don't really know how long they're going to keep going with this thing, I guess, as long as they can, essentially, um, you know, and we'll see how that plays out. But I think there's uh, obviously other efforts here. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there are also these sort of like propaganda efforts to sort of link COVID-19 um, and climate change. So like EcoHealth Alliance, um, I'm sure a lot of people are probably familiar with that. If you're not, you can go back and listen to my podcast with Sam Husseini. Um, they were involved at the uh, Wuhan Institute for Virology, and they're uh, very heavily funded by the U.S. military um, and also USAID. Uh, but they essentially, um, you know, were very committed to making the zoonotic origin of COVID-19 the official story from the off as a means of linking it to climate change um, by saying that uh, because of climate change, we'll have more, you know, that's what caused COVID-19 essentially because of, you know, all these issues. <clears throat> And then from there, uh, we'll have more and more and more pandemics of growing severity, even worse of COVID-19 into the future and all of that. And I think that's a that's a key narrative for them to build upon. Um, so it's just kind of um, uh, interesting how all these different agendas are coming together. Yeah. So I just want to um, also people who are interested in learning more about um the New Deal for Nature, which actually it began, it continues to be rebranded. Um, through our work, we've been able to um, really hurt that that brand term, the New the New Deal for Nature. I work with a couple other people. Geraldine runs the Twitter account No Deal for Nature. Um, I really encourage people to follow that. We try to share a lot out of there. I forget what the latest hashtags are that they're using, but they're always trying to um, sort of you know, freshen up the campaign and mislead people with new hashtags once we sort of succeed in exposing what they're doing. So we've been able to have some success, you know, if you can call that success on that front. Um, so yeah, people could go to that Twitter account. And again, like I said, um, Stephen Corey, who's the former head of Survival International, which is one of the only NGOs I would actually even trust of that, you know, that size. Um, 
He's been, like I said, just great um, trying to inform people what the 30 by 30 campaign is led by National Geographic, which Klaus Schwab's daughter um, has some sort of high position in National Geographic. And it's also in partnership with the, I think it's pronounced Weiss campaign, which is the foundation of some other rich billionaire. Anyway, the 30 by 30 campaign, um, Stephen Corey has done a great job, um, you know, educating people what that is, what that holds in store, if that's allowed to happen. So follow him um, in Survival International. Um, just great work, you know, like great work, just normal people doing great work. So there, there is ways, you know, to expose this and build momentum against it. So where can people follow your great work and support it? Um, well, my great work has sort of, um, been, um, suffering a little bit over the past year. My family has been dealing with, um, problems that come, you know, sort of from COVID-19 in Canada, the lack of services. Um, yeah, anyway, I just have all kinds of family, um, like a big family crisis I've had to deal with. So, I'm still researching, I'm still reading, I'm still trying to get articles done. And when they are done, they'll be on the art of annihilation or the wrong kind of green. And in the meantime, um, right now, sort of a calm period, I'm trying to catch up, get some work done, do some interviews. So I appreciate this one, Whitney. And um, yeah, and I I do, I've given up on Facebook, to to be honest, but I do try to um, take to my Twitter account every couple of days. And just sort of give people an overview of what I've been um, researching or looking at. All right, great. Well, I definitely encourage people listening to, you know, if they haven't already, to go and read your Greta Thunberg series and some of your existing work um, while we wait for some of your newer articles. Um, Because um, these things, uh, especially the kind Corey writes, I mean, some people think my articles are long, uh, but you tend to outdo me even in, in that regard. And, and these types of things take a long time to put together to research and to write. So, um, yeah, thanks. Thank you, Whitney. And also, I just want to also plug um, the Winter Oak blog. Um, they do um, really good job of getting a lot of information in one place for people to come and see what's going on. And as well, I, I've been doing a podcast with John, um, playwright John Stepling and artist Hiroyuki Hamada about, and Johan. Oh God, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, a young guy from, um, Sweden and it's called Aesthetic Resistance. And so we, um, throw around ideas on there once we can talk about basically what's been happening. Okay, great. Well, I'd encourage people to check that out as well. Uh, I haven't heard of it myself, uh, <laughs> until now, but, uh, sounds great. All right. So with that being said, uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, as always, for the first few days, this is a premium episode. And so we'll be paywalled. You can access it by supporting Unlimited Hangout um, under uh, the Join Us tab um, or a, a membership on the UnlimitedHangout.com website or through Rockfin.com or OKFIN.com. Uh, but all, you know, all episodes after they're not paywalled are you know publicly available on um on various podcasting apps. So feel free to share um, once this becomes public. Um, and again, thanks to everyone for supporting the podcast. Uh, hopefully next episode, we will be having Nick Bryant on to be talking about the Franklin scandal. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can look forward to that episode. And that's about it. Thanks everyone and catch you next time.